Welcome to the Work Revolution podcast, where we believe, in fact, we know, there's a better way to work and live. And we are here to challenge the status quo of obsolete workplace practices and ideas about leadership. I'm Lisa. And I'm Deborah. Along with you, our listeners, we're evolving our thinking about what it means to belong, innovate, and create change at work. Join us as we dispel the myths of meritocracy, hierarchy, and other bullshit practices that get in the way of all of us harnessing our full potential to make a better world. Welcome back to our listeners. Today, Lisa and I are kicking off the first of a three-part series that we're calling Brain-Based Leadership. So we have a special guest to talk about this, and I'll, I'll tell you more about him in a second. And our, our thinking here is that we really want to be thinking about human beings show up in the workplace. And if workplace culture, workplace practices, and the way that leaders engage with people was going to maximize human capability and really be considerate of and knowledgeable of the way our brains work and the way that you know people can be creative and you know engage in higher levels of thinking in order to do their best work what would a workplace like that look like and what would what would those leaders be doing but we're really starting at the roots of that in terms of the human brain and the connections that the human brain has to the human heart and other parts of the body so we're going to start this with stress and burnout so we're going to start start the conversation there how's your stress today lisa <laughs> well, um, hey, Deborah, how's my How are stress? You? <laughs> how's my, wouldn't it be great if we actually asked people that in the workplace, right? You know, so we can then gauge what mental load that they're feeling. So my stress, I would probably say, let me, let me put it on a one to 10. I would probably say my stress level is at a six-ish uh, today. I've got some stuff going on in my personal life. I got some stuff going on in my professional life. It's a Friday. I feel like I need to get a few things done. And I'm a little underslept because it's been a pretty intense week. So I would love to say that my stress level was a bit less than it is, but I'm conscious of the fact that I have uh, not, not butterflies in my stomach stress, but maybe, you know, one or two ladybugs. Yeah. One or two ladybugs. I like that. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the physiology of what's going on there. My stress is uh, it's, you know, I find that as we're recording this, you know, there's, there's a war that has broken out in the Ukraine. I have, you know, things going on in my personal life. So, you know, the other aspect of this, of course, is that we show up as whole human beings and we don't really compartmentalize ourselves just in the workplace. So that's something that I think really good leaders will, will be able to take into consideration. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. So his name is Michael Thompson. And Michael Thompson is a leadership coach and consultant with an organization called Change Innovators. And he does a lot of facilitation and coaching work with leaders. And part of the work he does is to really promote wellness in the workplace and enhance well-being of employees. And not just because that's a nice thing to do, but because the work that Change Innovators does believes that that is also a path to better performance. So he is an expert in stress management, resiliency, and self-awareness. 
and also at then recommending solution to mitigate workplace stressors. He is also a certified trainer in something called heart math, which is really interesting. So let's hear the conversation with Michael. And then at least I know you and I will have some things to deconstruct about it. Yeah. Looking forward to, uh, to hearing what he has to say. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So you have a really strong background in some of the science related to how the brain works and what that means in workplaces and what that means when we think about the best way to lead people and, and cultures within organizations. So I really wanted to dig into some of that today if we can. And I want to start with stress, burnout, overwork, we could call it. There's been a lot said about that recently. I'm seeing a lot of articles coming out about that. It was probably, I mean, I think it was a problem before the pandemic, but the pandemic has really exacerbated it, I guess, to some degree. So let's just start with that. Like, how big a problem do you think stress, burnout, overwork is in our work culture? Well, I think, first of all, it's a massive problem. I think that one of the other challenges is how normalized being chronically stressed or being chronically busy has become. And we don't have a really strong balancing component to it when it comes to the well-being of other people. For the most part, we've kind of left that in the hands of the individuals. And with the conditions the way they are right now, it's very difficult to uh, expect or assume that people are taking a lot of steps outside of work um, to have more well-being and to have more resilience with um, how fast things are moving, the demands in our life and family right now. Yeah, I think it was 2015 where I really started to get interested in some of the research coming out around the brain and following organizations like the Neuroleadership Institute, learning about some brain-based models and helping people look at the brain as a tool for productivity and taking what we're now learning about the brain and incorporating that into their leadership approach. And so I'm hoping that that's what we'll be able to kind of touch on as we go today. But, you know, on this theme of stress, I think we need to appreciate that stress is very complicated and it really has one function. So when we think of stress, we're talking about we perceive a threat, whether that threat is real or just a perception in our mind, and it can influence or help the release of cortisol and adrenaline into our blood. So when we're talking about stress, we're really talking about a different physiological state in the body. And when we start measuring this and understanding, okay, what actually happens when we're experiencing a stress response? So if it's okay with you, I'll just kind of go through like an analogy that I like to use. But sure. I use this analogy like I'm, you know, new to hiking and I have all my hiking gear. So, you know, I'm feeling really confident. I go out into the mountains and, you know, yeah, I know that there's some dangers out there, but I got all my new gear. So I feel really good. And, you know, let's say I wake up and, you know, a beautiful night of camping and I decide to go out for one more walk, maybe to go and get a picture. And I find some delicious blueberries and it's a sunny day and everything's great. And I'm in a wonderful mood. But, you know, then I decide still a few kilometers away from my car. And why don't I try and find a nice clearing to get some pictures, right? Well, of course, I go into this clearing and then I see a bear, right? Or I see a bear and, and her cubs, so to speak. We've been essentially evolved to have this very sensitive threat response. And 
for most people, they know that a bear, in particular a bear with their cubs, is going to be a pretty big threat to them. So even just seeing the bear is going to cause the release of stress chemicals, and that will happen very, very quickly. And what's interesting is that in this moment, when I'm now running away from a bear, well, certain things matter to my survival and certain things do not matter to my survival. And the term that we'll talk about is attention regulation. So really, when we talk about our brain and our brain's ability to do good work, it really has to do with our ability to have control over executive functions. So we can think clearly, we're not dealing with too many distractions, we can really focus on something. And it turns out that focusing on something does require a lot of our energy. And it turns out that we actually use our prefrontal cortex a lot when we're trying to think, when we're trying to plan or solve a problem. So if we go back to this idea of a bear, and now I'm running away from the bear, you have to imagine that all of a sudden my higher level thinking is no longer important to me. Like I'm not worried about my plans on the weekend. I don't have the mental resources to solve algebra equations. Like it's just not going to happen. And the brain has learned over time, and this is what we've evolved, is that physical stimuli in that context becomes more relevant than higher level thinking. So what does that mean? It means that when we have the strong release of stress chemicals, all of a sudden it becomes the sensory information in our environment that the brain starts to rely on. And when I'm running away from a bear, it's great because I need to know, you know, am I on solid ground? So that stimuli that's coming from my feet, that tactile information, that's really important. What can I hear in the distance? Do I hear any other campers or that I could run to for safety in numbers? You know, what do I smell? Do I smell any cooking or campfires burning in the distance that, again, I could run to for safety? So those types of sensations become heightened in the brain and the sort of higher level thinking is no longer as relevant. And so essentially what happens in this attention regulation is that that physical stimuli takes precedence. And we've learned as we've evolved how that happen essentially. And that's great when I'm running away from a bear because when I'm running away from a bear, do you think my body is concerned about digesting those blueberries I had for lunch, Deborah? Right, no, not, not at no, all. <laughs> not a chance. Yeah. Do you think my body is concerned about catching the common cold? No. Right? So the idea is our body is learned to essentially move resources around in the body. And when we have more cortisol running through our blood, the cortisol is essentially allowing our body to expend more resources, to spend more energy. So higher levels of cortisol in the body allow your brain and your muscles to spend more oxygen and glucose, essentially. This is why when you have a stressful day, you're very tired at the end of it. So a big component is to appreciate that strong presence of stressful stimuli and stress chemicals changes our physiology. And when that change is taking place and that attention regulation is taking place in our brain, it can affect our ability to engage in good work and it can affect our ability to concentrate, to think creatively and to think, you know, with even with some more objectivity as well. So in a typical work day for the average person, because, you know, the thing that you said that I think is worth emphasizing is that this is a real or a perceived threat, right? So if my boss is getting really anxious about a deadline, my brain goes into that same response is, is what you're saying, right? Even though I don't have to run away from a bear and there's nowhere I can run. I have to sit at my desk and churn out work. So what's happening in my body? Same thing? 
Yeah. Well, and what's really fun is that now that we know some of this stuff and now that we can measure it, we can actually measure heart rate variability. So I love when we were doing in-person training. I haven't done too much of this over the last couple of years, but what we would do is we would teach people about their autonomic nervous system. We teach them about how does your body respond? How is your heart beating when you're having a stress reaction? And when and how is your body behaving and how is your heart beating when you're in a calm, relaxed state? And it turns out that there is quite a big difference there. And it turns out that there's actually a bi-directional highway between our heart and our brain. Now, these bi-directional highways between our organs and our brain are becoming more well-known. Most of your viewers will probably know or have heard recently about the bi-directional highway between our stomach and our brain. And, you know, we can talk about being hangry, right? So our mood and things like that can adjust when we start to have low blood sugar or we're, we're getting hungry, right? One of the examples I'll bring in here that I think many people have connected with at some point in their life is taking an exam. So I'll often bring in this idea of a bear and running away from a bear and how that changes our thinking process to now a student taking a biology exam. And I say, well, okay, let's assume that we've studied, we're prepared for this exam, but then we show up the day of the exam and someone asks us if we read chapter 13 and you know that there's going to be a long answer. Now, maybe we didn't think that we had to read chapter 13. And we get two options in that situation, right? The first option is I can go to being more optimistic. I can say, you know, I've studied really hard. I'm familiar with the material. Even though I didn't read chapter 13, I'm sure that I'll be able to, you know, process something and come up with an answer. So that's option one. That's a difficult one, especially in the face of now thinking that you might struggle on this exam. But option two, which I think I've had experience with and probably more people have had experience, is you can freak out. You can start to get worried. You can start to stress out about the fact that maybe you're going to fail this exam. And we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And so also appreciating that the degree of stress that we go into is also a degree of choice. And that really starts to become, in the beginning, a bit challenging, but over the long term, it starts to become much more empowering to connect with this idea of choice. So now we think about this student who's, let's say, struggling to write an exam. Those same stress chemicals, because again, the student is thinking this performance on this exam could be a big contributor to their future success. So it really does become a threat like that. And for anyone who wants the terms, essentially what I'm talking about is top-down control of our prefrontal cortex. So when I say top-down control of our prefrontal cortex, it means all of my knowledge and all of my experience is informing what it is that I'm doing. It's informing the task that I'm engaging in. However, when we get a strong dose of these stress chemicals in our system, that attention regulation can switch. So if I go back to the bear for a second, that switch is taking place in my brain because higher level thinking is not important. And it's the physical stimuli in my environment that's now going to help me survive. Does that make sense, Deborah, when I say yeah, that? Yeah. So as the student in the room, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, I have less access now if I'm that student to all of the stuff I studied, all of the preparation I did, it's actually going to be harder for me to recall that information. So not only will it be harder for you, but the other challenge is that this cycle, once we're in a cycle of anxious, stressful thinking, do you think it's easy for that to get worse? Oh yeah. Right. 100%. So once they start to, right. So the idea is, is that not only if we don't catch the stress in the beginning and calm it down, it can actually perpetuate and get much more intense. 
Because if someone's sitting there saying, I might fail this exam, and that might mean I might have to redo this class, and that means another year of university, it means more work, right? So we can overwhelm ourselves very, very quickly. And it turns out that our brain actually can generate that anxious thinking very easily. It turns out that we do anxious thinking much better than we do mental contrasting, right? So when I say mental contrasting, that's that first option that I said where I actually challenge that anxious thought to give myself some more credibility to say, I have studied, you know, that's just going to be one question I am going to do just fine. I will still be able to pass this, you know, I'll still be able to excel. So when we think of now this attention switch or this attention regulation, when I'm running away from a bear, it's highly advantageous because I'm going to need all of that physical stimuli to know how to navigate my physical environment in a more meaningful way. And that stimuli takes precedence. But now when I'm a student taking that exam, now it's I'm losing all of that knowledge, that top-down process. And now this bottom-up process starts to take over. So what does that mean? When we say bottom-up, it means now my attention is being directed by stimuli in my environment. So if you're that student starting to struggle, you smell every scent in the room, right? You can smell that person's deodorant, that person's perfume, it's being heightened. You can hear every creak in the chair, every pencil scratch, right? And you're very easily distracted in this state. So again, the same process happens and it has to do with these stress chemicals. So just in that early onset for a student to understand how their brain processes information differently and to monitor their stress when they're taking exams and things like that, because we want to be able to draw from that knowledge, right? So if we take this, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is where we start to generate the conversation. And I have the pleasure of working with a lot of manufacturers, right? Where when we see times of heightened and prolonged stress, we also see areas of increased injury. We see quality challenges and concerns. We also see more conflict and communication breakdowns, again, often because people aren't in a place where they're retaining or absorbing as much information. And it's where we get into sort of a a more combative form of communication as well. Mm-hmm. And also organizations are you know, concerned about creativity and problem solving. They want people to be able to do sometimes very complex work, come up with creative solutions. And based on what you're saying, being in that stress response would really impede that as well. Yes. And you know, it's interesting. Back in 2019, I went and completed a brain-based coaching program that was put on by the Neuroleadership Institute. And some of the things that I learned there, they really do go into more detail about this prefrontal cortex. And it turns out that our prefrontal cortex is very, very sensitive. So not only is it sensitive to the neurochemical environment and some of these stress chemicals, but it's also sensitive to the amount of like oxygen and glucose in the brain. And it turns out that we need not too much, not too little of these things, but just the right amount. And to compound that further, our brain doesn't have unlimited resources. Like we wake up with a limited amount of energy in a day, and there's certain things we do to restore that energy. But that is also one of the challenges of stress. So if we think about three major things human beings do to restore their energy or to build more energy, what do you think those three things might be? I'm going to say sleep. Sleep, absolutely. Diet, like food-related things, so good quality food. And hydration, yeah, so that'll be two. The third one's a little counterintuitive. 
I think the third one, you know what, this one's not coming readily to mind, but I'm going to say doing something joyful or having play. So that's uh, that, that's not a bad guess. And <laughs> it certainly could be, absolutely, is, it would be a major contributing factor. The third one is exercise. And mm. I just use the example, right? If I want more energy to run a marathon, right. I have to develop that cardiovascular strength over time prior to obviously running that marathon. Right. So what's fascinating about this is that it turns out that sleep, the desire to exercise, and our nutritional choices actually get negatively impacted by a lot of stress. So we would normally think, okay, I'm really stressed out. I'm way more tired. I'm way more exhausted at the end of the day. Therefore, I should be able to sleep it. Like I should, I'm tired, so I should be able to sleep. But it turns out that when we're dealing with chronic stress in particular, that the quality and the duration of our sleep gets interrupted. And that has a negative effect. So if I'm stressed out at work, again, my dietary choices, I'm not necessarily going to the rainbow salad and all the fiber necessarily, right? I tend to go to the drive through I tend to go for the things that I know are going to you know, give me that quick energy boost, right? But not necessarily have some of those nutritional components. And of course, you're tired at the end of the day. And if you're already feeling exhausted, that energy level to push ourselves to exercise. So I bring this up because it can be a very vicious cycle of stress where when we have a lot of stress, the things that we would naturally have to reduce that stress are also inhibited. And so I always share this with leaders so that we can be more patient and more understanding during times of stress. So it, it becomes this, this idea where, and we really come from this generation or multiple generations where we talked about stress being a good thing, you know, that there's a such thing as good stress. And it's not to say that there can't be, you know, that there isn't like a good or bad stress. It's the ability to just understand that if we're in a place where we are allowing ourselves to become more stressed out and that becomes a routine or a pattern for us, our brain becomes accustomed to that. So we end up feeling like this is normal. We end up feeling like everyone is in this kind of stressed out state and it can become more challenging because if everyone's acting like this and no one is necessarily taking the time for themselves, and again, that becomes a normalized behavior. And so our ability to say, okay, if people are dealing with chronic stress, it's going to negatively impact their ability to do good work. It's going to negatively impact their prefrontal cortex ability to make really clear decisions. If people's brains aren't in a state where they can do great work or good work, then that's also going to create more stressors because if someone's starting to struggle in their performance or they need help, but they're really stressed out, they might not be as communicative. If someone's really extroverted and they get stressed out, they may become more communicative, but that might not be perceived as advantageous communication. And so what can happen, and I believe this is where we'll take this conversation in, in the next section, but this ability to appreciate that it's very easy for things to get worse. And when people are at a, a stressed out state, we almost need them to become more vulnerable because that is vulnerable to pick up the phone, to tell your boss that you're struggling, to say that you're going to miss that deadline or that you really need help. And so part of the strategies that we develop and talk about is making space for an individual to process what is meaningful, what is relevant, what they are thinking of doing from an accountability perspective. Yeah, that's really important. Actually, one story that comes to mind for me 
sort of related to that is one time I was preparing an organization to let an individual go from that organization. And this choice was being made based on nothing to do with the individual per se. This individual had been with the organization a long time, had a really good track record, but this organization was implementing some technology changes, some different ways of doing things. And they felt that this person wasn't necessarily the person that was going to be able to adapt well and you know move forward considering how much the role was going to change. And they also went through a very long process of trying to figure out, is there another spot in the organization for this individual? And from the first time I had a conversation with the leadership with this organization, they changed their minds a couple of times. And I would say it was over six months before they finally made a decision. And I got a call to say, yes, we've made the decision. We're going to let this person go. So we make the plan that morning that I'm about to go in to this company. I get a call saying they went into HR and are going on sick leave. We could speculate on a number of different things here, but Based on my experience, having seen this type of thing play out in organizations, is people know when something's up. They're in an environment where they know their job is uncertain. There's a great deal of uncertainty. They know there's change afoot in the organization, and they don't know what their place in that change is going to be. The communication is not totally clear. And so you can imagine how that stress just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting to the point where people get to a place where they don't even know how to move forward. And in this case, the individual felt as though they had to go on a sick leave. And I've seen that type of thing happen before. Well, and it leads us beautifully into one of the brain-based models that we talk about related to conditions, environmental conditions or environmental factors that our brains are monitoring almost, you know, mostly below conscious awareness. And so when we talk about how an organization decides to, you know, make a decision or how they choose to communicate that, it turns out that there are pieces of extremely relevant information that they can consider in their approach and in their communication, knowing that regardless of where this person comes from and what their experience is, that their brain is placing value on these types of stimuli. And it can really support us in making a much, regardless of what the decision is going to be, it can allow us to approach that decision in a way that's going to, how would I say this, retain the engagement of individuals. It's very easy to disengage people today, in particular when things are uncertain or they don't have clarity around what's going to happen. So is that something you'd like to move into now, Deborah? Or Yeah, that sounds good. So you mentioned you said environmental conditions that we are, and again, this goes back to I think that part of our brain that's always scanning our environment for potential danger, right? Absolutely. So the model I'm referring to is called the SCARF model. And the SCARF model refers to five environmental factors our brains are monitoring, mostly below conscious awareness. So that stands for status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And I can speak to each of these if you like, but status is really around, am I important, right? Do other people hear me? Do other people see me? Am I valued here? And what does that mean as it relates to my interactions with other people? So it's a sense that's very important. And 
I'll sometimes use examples like the way in which when we're younger, right, how our behavior changes when the principal walks into the room, right? Or, you know, the feeling you have when your boss calls you at, you know, 4.30 on a Friday to come by their office, right? You're being called upon by someone in a position of higher status. And depending on how that relationship is or how the last week went, we, again, are much better at going to anxious thinking. So retaining status and honoring status is is something that I'll speak to. and And I can provide some examples of that in a little bit. Certainty is essentially related to our ability to predict. So when people have certainty, they know what's expected of them. They know how to get those results. And they know that they have the tools to get there. And so certainty becomes a big component to people feeling comfortable. And it's one of the reasons why change is really difficult, because anytime there's something that's new, novel, different, it's going to be perceived as a threat first. Now, to go into more detail on that, it's just to speak to the fact that behaviors and patterns we engage in regularly become hardwired in our brain. So if you think about learning to drive a car, The first couple of years of the first six months, it really requires a lot of your energy. You're new to the rules of the road. You're learning to become hopefully a defensive driver, right? And so that's something that you have to really practice and and do consciously. And it's a big difference between, you know, your first couple of months behind the wheel and, you know, after you've driven for a decade or two. So when we've driven a vehicle for, say, 10, 20 years, you're actually able to drive and operate that vehicle in a safe way, subtly, like unconsciously, right? And we get this experience by like driving on the highway, right? People can daydream on the highway and, you know, 10, 20 kilometers goes by and that person is like, whoa, I wasn't paying attention to driving. But again, their vehicle stayed in the lanes and they kept the traffic speed, right? So When we think about hardwired pathways, it requires less energy for the brain to engage in. So it's familiar, it's comfortable for the brain to do that. But when we're looking to change something, even if it's changing a computer program, changing who I'm reporting to, my brain can't rely on those hardwired pathways anymore. So more conscious effort is required. So certainty becomes important and appreciating that the brain engages in neuroplasticity, right? So we actually can change and develop new pathways. And that's a process that takes more time. It takes more effort and consistency. And it's just that same way. The first time we do something, it's not going to be very comfortable. Second, third time, we're still learning. But when we stick with it, all of a sudden, those disciplines and those competencies develop over time. So certainty. Autonomy is a feeling of control. And autonomy is really important today because we've placed a much greater emphasis on autonomy. In particular, now that we have many people working from home, we want individuals to have that autonomy, to have that control. And it turns out that if you remove someone's autonomy, that that could have a negative effect. So something as simple as changing someone's schedule or not giving enough advance notice to a schedule change right? That can cause an issue for individuals because maybe that autonomy they would have liked to have been asked or included in that decision. So autonomy is really important. Relatedness. Now, this one's interesting because this is now really how am I connected with the other people around me? Do I have positive social interactions or do I have a, a hesitancy with other people? And it turns out that having positive social interactions is very important to the brain. Because when we have positive social interactions, the brain releases oxytocin, which is essentially a powerful bonding chemical. And oxytocin has actually been shown to help reduce the damage that's done to our heart done by stress. 
So our ability to feel connected, our ability to feel a sense of relationship with other people and a trust between people starts to become important. Because if we're not trusting, those aren't going to be very positive. And if they're not very positive, then we won't necessarily be creating this oxytocin response. So that's relatedness. Fairness is a really interesting one. So fairness is, is the final one in the SCARF model. And fairness is important because everyone's got a different definition of fairness. Everyone is looking for different examples of what is fair and what is not. And it turns out that even like equal pay for equal work isn't just unique to the human being. It's actually unique to mammals as well. So they've been able to do studies with different types of animals where we can measure their behavior when they're doing a task and when they're being asked to do that same task, but for an unequal, let's say, reward. And the best example I have of this that I like to talk about is an example that's done with capuchin monkeys. And there's a great researcher, his name, I'm losing it at the moment, but he's got a couple of really great videos on YouTube where he basically shows, you know, two capuchin monkeys who live in a group together. And all they have to do is grab a rock and give that rock back to a, a researcher. Except what happens is, is the first monkey, so we'll, we'll just we'll just share this if that's okay with you. Deborah, yeah, I've but, seen this video. It's, it's, it's awesome. In essence, what the researcher does is they give the first monkey a piece of cucumber for completing the task. And the cucumber is yummy. They'll eat the cucumber, no problem. And they'll do the task like over 20 times in a row with cucumber as the reward. However, monkeys place a greater emphasis on grapes. So grapes are a much greater food preference for these capuchin monkeys than the cucumber. So if you take another monkey and you put it beside that monkey and that they do the exact same task, it turns out that the monkey who gets the grape is very happy receiving the grape. They're not concerned by the fact that the other person is getting the cucumber and they don't necessarily go to sharing right off the bat. So what happens is, is when they go back to the monkey who receives cucumber and they do the same task, well, the monkey knows that monkey number two, capuchin monkey number two, got grape. So when they try to give cucumber as a reward to that monkey, they reject it. And in the video, it's rather comical watching this monkey throw cucumber back at the researcher. Yeah, and there's a scene too where the monkey's like checking the rock. Like, is there something wrong with this rock? <laughs> right? right. Keeps trying over and over again to figure out why am I not getting the grape? Well, and where I take that and why I think it's such a fascinating component is I'll make the joke. I'll say, so when we're upset, when we perceive something as unfair, are we allowed to throw our cucumber salad in our boss's face? Like, is that something we're allowed to do? And it's like, no. Well, it turns out that we actually use our prefrontal cortex to inhibit certain behaviors. So we learn that certain things are not appropriate in a social context. So we learn that that's not appropriate. So I say, well, what happens still? Because there's still things that are unfair or perceived as unfair. So what do you think happens if we're not allowed to just throw cucumber at people? And people say, well, we disengage or we disagree or we have conflict. And it's important to appreciate that this is happening whether we're aware of it or not. And so part of the solution starts to become to lean into some of these environmental factors to understand the subjective interpretation of the people who were leading or managing. And why does that become relevant? Because it turns out it, it can make a pretty substantial difference in the relationships, in the way that people choose to communicate with one another. And so these are things that start to become, to me, very relevant because everyone has a brain. 
And if these are things that matter to us, then we can start to consider them in our engagement with other people, knowing that their brains are monitoring it. Everyone has a brain. People need to work and organizations are concerned with productivity and creativity and problem solving. And so keeping our brains in a state where they can be more relaxed, as you've said, be more calm, have access to those other resources and the prefrontal cortex is therefore, I guess, would really important for doing good work. Absolutely. And, you know, these factors are going to be different to other people. So you might find that some individuals' autonomy is really important, or you might find that honoring their status, making sure that they're given the credit that they're due, that that might become more important. And we certainly don't want to have this conversation in in the context that there isn't a unique component to it. So each individual has different observable behavior. They have different motivational capacities. Human beings all have different levels of emotional intelligence and they value emotional intelligence differently. So where this goes is essentially creating an engagement strategy that is meaningful and relevant to the other human beings that we're working with. It is not as simple anymore as saying my way or the highway. This is what I need you to do and I expect it done by the end of the week. Setting expectations is not equal to other people communicating what they need to be accountable for. And so setting expectations and communicating expectations is really easy for the leader to do because that leader might have their status involved, their their certainty, right? Because they're going to have more knowledge or more autonomy potentially. So making a little bit of space to say, my interpretation is that this could take up to let's say, this amount of time. But I'm very curious, how is your brain organizing this? How are you fitting the pieces in place? Do you know where to get resources in the event that you need some help? Do you know how to contact me or get a hold of me in the event that you want some support? So it sounds like what you're saying is behavioral changes in the leader to take into account all of the ways in which human brains operate and all of the individual differences that can be at play for people. Yeah. And one of the pieces that I think really cements this for leaders when they start engaging with it is that they start to engage with employees in a context where the employee feels more fulfilled. The employee can have more self-actualization. The employee is more involved in how and why they're doing the work that they're doing. Because managers, you know, the game is changing where You know, your manager used to be, let's say, more of a subject matter expert in your department or in in the particular competency that you're engaged in. But that's starting to change where now we have, let's say, a manager who's overlooking several different disciplines and the individuals engaged in those disciplines have more subject matter knowledge. That ability for that leader to prop that up, to honor that allows for that individual to be seen in a way that is more meaningful to them, where their status is honored. They have an opportunity to speak to how they would go about accomplishing a task or what barriers they might see in front of them accomplishing the task. When a leader gets into the pattern of just communicating expectations and holding people accountable, it really thrives on making assumptions assumptions that people are sleeping well, that they're in a state where they can do good work, that they feel comfortable to engage with the other people on the project, for example. An interpersonal relationship starts to become critical because people are far more 
giving. People are far more patient when they're in a collaborative and respecting relationship. But when it's not, when it's not a safe, trusting, collaborative relationship, an uh, entirely different form of behavior takes place. And again, that does link back to this idea of the stress response. And the funny thing that I like to say, and I know it's a bit weird, but I like to say that leaders of the future will be managing the neurochemical environment. They will be ensuring for neurological safety. They will be ensuring that, you know, that individuals are not taking this stress home with them and having it influence their home life or their sleep, for example. So, Deborah, thank you for having this conversation with Michael. And as we said at the front end, this is one of three uh, parts of the broader conversation that you've had with Michael. But I want to dig into a couple of things here that uh, the two of you discuss. And one of them is to, to poke a little bit at one of the items or one of the elements of the SCARF model, which is certainty and what our brains, we and our brains crave is you know, some predictability. And what happens in the process of change, and we're focusing on the workplace, so organizational change, what happens to us when we are being either asked to participate in a change, changes just happen to us, or I'm sure many of our listeners have had this experience where suddenly there's an announcement from the senior team, something pretty major is changing and it can blindside people or, or sort of um, feel like it comes out of nowhere. You know, the one thing I learned in the, the work that I do around change is that senior leaders or leaders higher up in the organization typically are involved in the decision making around the change. They're involved over a longer period of time. They have time to talk about it. They have more information. They have time to acclimate. But for those of us who are lower down in the organization, often we find out about a change through an announcement, an email from the CEO or something like that. And it can really throw us off of our you know, our day, first of all, but also create a, this profound sense of uncertainty, everything from, well, what does this mean for me today to, am I going to lose my job? And I know that I've experienced that. What's, what's your experience around uncertainty when it comes to the workplace? I think this is a huge one. Well, I've seen a lot of change. A lot of the work I've done, as, is, as I've probably said many times before, is at a point of change in an organization where people's jobs are being impacted. So I've seen the result of that. And, you know, the interesting thing that Michael said to me, I said in a conversation that really stuck out to me is any change is at first a threat. So I think what's so important to remember is that it's, this is natural process that happens very quickly. And so we have to be an acceptance of the fact that this is natural. It's normal and that being perceived as a threat response. Now, how often, how long do people stay in that response? How quickly and easily are they able to move out of that response? It, that will depend on a lot of variables, a lot of variables within the individual in terms of their own capacity and their history and what they're, what they're bringing with them from their past, going right back to childhood, right? And, and a lot of variables around what's in the workplace that's either supportive of it or perhaps a hindrance. So, you know, I found this change one a really big one too. It was one of the ones that I had flagged. And I think it's just so important for organizational leaders to really understand. And because we've we've gotten to a place, I think, in, in organizations and in workplaces where 
we expect change. First of all, change is happening all the time. It's happening really quickly. Sometimes organizations, I did read a report a couple of years back about, you know, organizations sometimes significantly changing direction a couple times in a year. And so people get to a point where they, you know, Michael talked about just started really disengage. Oh, it's another thing, you know? And also it can get to a point where they, where employees start to think, you know, they lose some trust and they start to think, oh, well, you know, we've gone through this three or four times before and, you know, nothing has really significantly changed. Anything else on that? I, I also want to connect this to learning, but was there anything else for you that was standing out about this one? Yeah. I mean, you know, there are many change models. And I mean, I think the last time I Googled it, we were into the thousands and thousands, frameworks, models, programs you can buy to put your leadership team through learning how to manage change. You know, there's always something in a change model that is useful to use. But to me, the most useful model is one, it's a very simple model. It's by these uh, two guys. The book isn't even available anymore, which is a pity. It's called um, Leading Strategic Change by Black and Gregerson or Gregerson and Black. I can't remember whose name is first on the cover of the book. But they say one of the things that is most difficult about change is we're so good at doing the thing the way that we're no longer being asked to do it right? So we have the neural pathways, we have the memory, we have, you know, it's like that example Michael gave of driving, right? Like I mm-hmm. show up, I know what's expected of me, I know what to do. And then, you know, organizations are really great at explaining why we need to change, right? So it could be market conditions, it could be new technology. And there's an assumption I think organizations make that if I tell you often enough why we need to change, you'll just figure out what it is you need to do to perform in the new environment, mm-hmm. When in fact, what we need to do is help people learn how to do their jobs differently or how to focus on different things. And so organizations that understand that change is a learning process do far better than organizations that think that change is a communications process. So I'll I'll use a personal example that hopefully our listeners will agree makes sense and is connected to this. My husband and I have been going through a process recently of trying to transfer the accountability of getting up and ready in the morning. So I'm referring now to my son who's in grade nine, transferring the responsibility and accountability for getting up, getting to school on time and making your lunch from us to him, right? Now, it's really easy for us to say, I've asked him twice to do this. Why isn't he getting it? Uh, should we dock his allowance because he didn't do it or because he was late, late for school. So he, he got partway, but then he ended up being late. So if I'm to take this philosophy that we're talking about here, he's got to create some near neural pathways and he's got some challenges related to this, the teenage brain that, you know, does want to sleep later in the day. That's a, that's a change that happens. It's a biological reality. And so, you know, it's my husband and I have gone back and forth. We've thought about different strategies. But I think the reality is, is it just requires so much patience, so much, you know, we're leading people to choice. You know, we're meeting them where they are, not where we we think we need them to be, right? right? And so it requires leaders, I think, to really dig deep in terms of their compassion and their patience level to bring people along. And if we've set, and this is why I think, and and Michael did go there a little bit 
is, you know, asking people like, what's the timeline that you think works? Because, you know, it's easy for us to say, and we're going to do this in a month. Like how many times have you been involved in organizational change where all of a sudden, <laughs> right. and it ends up making them, it ends up making the leadership team look like they don't know what they're doing sometimes with their employee base, because then they have to backpedal and backtrack and, and deadlines are missed. And like, oh, well, we actually, we have to postpone that to, you know, by this amount of time, because we don't have these things in place. And so it's, to me, these things are all related and, you know, that thinking about, well, what are the leadership behaviors that need to shift and the considerations that they can, they can take in when they're dealing with human beings who are trying to learn something new, just to go a little deeper on the learning piece. Cause we've, we, we've also heard a lot about learning agility. And I think this also speaks to, and this is again, same with kids. The most important thing you can teach your kids is to love to learn, to be curious. Well, it's the same thing. And, and our generation wasn't really taught that for the most, not that that's maybe true of some people, but I would say it wasn't true of me. You know, creating an environment and a culture within an organization that is that's a really safe place for people to learn. And that's got some nuances to it. Like what do you, like if I was to say to you, Lisa, what are the elements of a workplace where it's really safe to learn? Like what kind of things would that bring up for you? That's a great question because to me, the, the, one of the key things a leader needs to do is to set people up for success, right? So if you just say, for instance, to go back to the example of your son and making his lunch, if you say, okay, you're now making lunch for yourself and there's uh, no bread in the house, there's no peanut butter, you know, <laughs> what, you know, there's no bag to put your food in, there's no water bottle, right? So to then send people off and expect them to perform or to do something that you're, you know, you want them to do and you've not put the pieces in place for them to do it and then turn around and blame them for not being successful. To me, the fault lies obviously on the, on the leader here. You know, the other thing that, that around learning and adults in the workplace is that, you know, we have developed, many of us, a fear of looking stupid by not knowing how to do something for the very first time. I am not going to know how to water ski if I've never water skied, right? So we, we need to, as you say, be patient, factor in the learning time, and also understand people's readiness to learn something. Some stuff is easy to learn, right? We've got a new photocopier and whenever you know, this is how it works and this is how you get color in black and white. Okay, that's maybe a silly example. But if we're talking about a whole new way of interacting in a culture that's just gone through a scandal, for instance, in an organization, we are asking people to really think differently and behave differently. That's gonna take a lot more learning around what does that look like? You know, I, I've often said to leaders when, you know, we taught, you and I talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode around, you know, setting performance expectations, right? So what do we expect of our employees to do? And to me, what's really important is that we set the behavioral norms, right? How do we want to be as people together and who do we want to become, right? Well, you know, because the doing of any task, you can figure out how to do the task, but it's really the how we want to be to me is a great way to set expectations. And what are the practices that allow us to be those things? As opposed to, I expect you, you know, the, the voice of authority or command and control to, you know, do this by this date, do that by that date, which isn't particularly helpful, especially if the employee doesn't really have any input into what their needs are to get the job done, what their learning needs might be around being able to perform properly in the role. 
And are we, again, I said this a couple of minutes ago, are we setting the conditions for people to succeed? Like if you're a leader, that's your number one job, Mm -hmm. making sure people have what they need to do the things that you're asking them to do. And to be stress-free, right? So th- this is this is the thing that that Michael has, I think, really clearly laid out for us is that if we're expecting people to look, be able to learn, for example, but they're feeling immense pressure and stress, it inhibits their ability to learn. Yeah. yeah. And so, creating that environment where learning is safe means I can make mistakes. I can go at, I don't have to be at a, you know, I don't have to compare my pace with my colleagues pace because maybe they're going a little faster than me. Like getting everybody there is the goal. How exactly how we get there, the pace at which we get, get there. Maybe there needs to be some understanding of the individual, you know, that there's individual differences between people. It has to be safe to be able to ask questions, to admit that you don't know something, to say something that maybe goes a little against the grain compared to how other people might be thinking about it. So to me, there's a lot that has to go into the space and the culture being a place that is truly one where, where people are, are, comfortable, their brains are relaxed enough to learn. And I I know from my own experience, I I can, I can think of a few examples in my life where, you know, I was, I felt like I was trying to comprehend or learn something, but I was a nervous wreck. Well, one of the other things that Michael talked about to, to move in uh, into a slightly different direction, he, he talked about focusing on energy management versus time mm-hmm. management. And this touches on how you say different people learn at different paces or have different ability to grasp information. You know, two people can show up for an eight or nine hour workday, hopefully less than that. And one of them has tasks that require a lot of thinking, if you think of knowledge workers or a lot of emotional labor. And these are things that are actually very, very tiring. And so you might, let's say, if I can give an example for me, if I'm working in the garden, I can work for hours and hours. I can work with my hands for a long period of time. If I am coaching, if I coach more than three or four people in a day, I am expending more energy in in a, a compressed amount of time. It's not that I'm working less hard because I've worked less hours. It's because this different demands are being made on my brain. And I think often we expect people, knowledge workers, people who work in primarily office, white collar jobs that have to do a lot of thinking to crank out these long days of work when in fact our brains are not designed to do that. And you know, I, I've heard you talk about you know, we, we want people to bring their best work, their creativity, their innovation. If you, if your brain is feeling maxed out, exhausted, you're feeling this foggy feeling of, I can't dig any deeper to get another thought out of this, requiring people to push beyond their limits does not create the types of workplaces in terms of the culture, nor the kinds of results I think that our organizations are looking for from their mm-hmm. workforce. Exactly. And when you think about time management, we think about how much stuff can we fit into our calendar, right? So that the calendar is full (laughs) and we, and we, you know, but what we don't necessarily take into consideration is, am I going to have enough energy to, to do the things? Am I building downtime in between certain activities so that I can refuel and make sure that I, you know, that I'm coming with the re the internal resources that I need in order to do, to do that work. And then the other thing I would just add to that is, you know, he talked a lot about cultural norms and this is where hopefully we will start to see a shift as more and more 
people start to understand the science and some of the the new practices of leadership that hopefully are are becoming more and more common because that employee who is working you know doing that that mental labor using their prefrontal cortex right and it's tiring we don't want that person to feel bad about the work they're doing because they're not cranking out that extra bit at the end of the day and that they're choosing to do things to take care of themselves. And so this is where I think the cultural norms come into play because if if employees, I'm thinking back to times in my past where maybe I worked with someone, maybe a colleague who really had some clear boundaries for themselves. Sometimes those were employees who were perceived as being you know, a little inflexible perhaps, or because the person who always said yes, and could cram everything in and was willing to, to forego some of their self-care and take on the extra. We have been in a culture that has rewarded that behavior. And what we need to start doing is really shifting that to say, you know, that's not necessarily a healthy behavior. There is, there is a cost to that behavior for individuals and for the organization. And, and you speak to this all the time, leaders modeling this. It's not just what we say, it's, it's, it's also the behavior that we're modeling. Yeah. And I would just add to that, you know, we, we have a cultural bias that over time, I have no idea where it's going to go, but I would hope that it would lessen is that we venerate entrepreneurs who work 80 to hundred hours and they build their companies and their fortunes and their, uh, their brands and et cetera. And, you know, many people who have full-time jobs feel that that's not enough. They have a side hustle in addition to that, you know, that this, this, this kind of grasping for, I don't know if it's, you know, is it about making more money? Is it about making a name for yourself? But, you know, we have these entrenched status. There you go. We have these entrenched ideas about what work means. And I think particularly in North America, we're a little bit too seduced by the idea that it's good to be busy, right? When you ask people how they are, it's like, oh, I'm so busy. As if that's a badge of honor when, you know, I much prefer the Scandinavian or European model, which is that we have a life and a part of our life concerns some work in which we make a contribution to society and earn some money so that we can have some resources to spend in other ways. And my, my frustration with a lot of, even with COVID and organizations saying, oh, we need to take care of the human mind and mental illness. It, it all sounds performative, frankly, because if we really cared about these things, like we would have put them in place before we, uh, we hit some of these crisis points. Yeah. And, and you're, you're making me think about the next phase of this, which is well-being, the things that really bring us a sense of well-being in life and some joy and meaning and happiness, which that's what we want to move to. I don't think we're on this planet to be stressed out beings that are units of productivity, We're here to contribute to beauty and learning and love and belonging for everyone. And so that's where we're going to take the conversation as we move forward with Michael, you know, a little bit about, okay, so, so how do we keep ourselves and our employees out of this stressed out state and how can we have a little more in terms of, uh, of the joy piece? So anything else to add, Lisa, before we wrap for today? I just wanted to say one thing that I thought was really interesting that Michael said was around, um, you know, when we put this pressure on people, when they're feeling stressed out, it's not just that people feel stressed out, 
like people get sicker, they're in more accidents. Like these are costly things, you know, both from a human capability. They make more mistakes. Exactly. And so like organizations that put this pressure on people to stress them out are not actually getting more work, right? It's like the the goose and the golden egg. Like if you keep trying to get the eggs and get the eggs and finally you cut the goose in half and like, where are the eggs? There are no eggs in there. We have to give the goose the time to produce them and uh, and lay these eggs. So, you know, I, I, I would really invite organizations and leaders to look at the things that they might be saying or doing that, you know, whether subtly or even unconsciously are putting added stress on employees, because people have very full lives. We live in a very complicated world. You know, maybe we always have, but it certainly feels this that way now, you know, in early 2022. So, you know, if people can just, you know, kind of loosen up this sense that something has to be done today or tomorrow and look at the overall arc of what we're trying to create. And to me, a healthy work culture is an important outcome of working. It's not just the things that we, whether it's intellectual property or physical things, we need to also create healthy happy workplaces. And I'm not talking about people, you know, dancing on tables and go-go boots happy, although that would be a great place to work for me, frankly. Although you could rock a pair of go-go boots. (laughs) I certainly could, especially (laughs) if they had pom-poms on the side. (laughs) Okay. So on that note, (laughs) we'll leave our listeners with that image. Yeah. So you can connect to us via our, through LinkedIn. We're both present there. Uh, Deborah Aidy and Lisa Schmidt. You can also reach us uh, through our website at workrevolutionpodcast.com. We look forward to the feedback that we get. We always love to read it. And uh, as always, if you have a gnarly issue that you'd like uh, Deborah and I to chew on and offer some of our thoughts on, please get a a hold of us and uh, we'd be happy to discuss that on air. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a review. And follow the Work Revolution podcast on Instagram for more great content and updates about our work. In addition to two full episodes a month, we have a monthly Ask Us Anything, where we answer your questions about leadership, career maneuvering, and whatever workplace challenges you're facing. Submit your questions to our website at workrevolutionpodcast.com where you'll find all our episodes as well as learn more about who we are. Thanks to Bernie at Blue Eye Music for our music theme and to the team at Poditize for production support. Until next time.